Day Talks right here. We gon' talk about it right here. We gon' talk about everything you like. I'ma make it real, real clear. It's Today Talks right here. We gon' talk about it right here. I'ma talk about everything you like. I'ma make it real, real clear. Cause it's Today Talks. And I'ma talk about it. Yeah. Cause it's Today Talks. And I'ma talk about it. Welcome to this episode of Tanae Talks. Remember, Tanae Talks is the podcast that educates and entertains. I will be, I have a special guest with me today. Today's discussion, we will be discussing housing insecurity and housing instability and touch on a brief uh, amount of homelessness and how all of that ties into uh, our state right now. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome the one, the only, David Babs. Good afternoon, Ty. It's good, good to see you. Good afternoon. I'm so happy to have you on the show. It's been a long, long time coming, <laughs> but I know oh, oh. A change gonna come, and you're gonna you're you're helping with the change, and you're gonna help my audience with the change, and give them a, a better understanding of what's going on. So, uh, I first like to start off and say, tell us a little bit about your origin story. My origin story. So there I was on page seven, Marvel edition book. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, I'm a super Marvel fan. Um, so what got me to here? Well, just briefly, I grew up in Arkansas. I did grow up in an impoverished area. I lived on the other side of the tracks um, and so on and so forth growing up um, right outside of Little Rock, Arkansas. If we have any transplants, there's a lot of Arkansans down here in Texas. Um, <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I, I noticed disparities right off, uh, just uh, not, I didn't face them so much. I had, you know, my needs provided for, but not much else. Um, but those that I was friends with and those around me and both environmental justices from being uh, literally pinned behind the train tracks in case of emergency fire and things like that, we were completely cut off. There was no bridge or tunnel or anything like that until I was about 15 years old. Um, so that's just a little bit of framework on that. And um Fast forward just a little bit and I went into the military and I worked in uh, Intel as an analyst. And um, when I got out, I uh, just, I knew I wanted to help people and uh, picked up a master's in social work um, and um, just kind of the past decade really shaped my social lens and, and, and that type of thing and, and seeing things around me and knowing that, you know, American, America can be better, we can all be better. Um, that type of mentality. And then I've always just been um, uh, fascinated with tech and innovation and um, yeah, and housing and, and just trying to understand and, and the whole like my whole, like I literally tried to understand the keeping up with the Joneses and even though <laughs> I was guilty of that, that mindset. So yeah. uh, I, I don't, you know, excuse myself from that, that thought. So, um, but, but the why in, you know, okay, so how can we do that in a different manner? And then as I really, you know, gained a deeper academic understanding um, with uh, a master's in social work, 
uh, and then jumped into teaching and, and then a doctorate from in social innovation from University of Southern California. Uh, just taught me how to reframe things in a, in a, in a social setting. And I found out that my niche was at the macro level and uh, system level uh, framing of societal problems. Yes. Uh, I never experienced housing insecurity uh, per se. I'm sure I was at risk many times from my own um, frivolous decisions. <laughs> uh, but, you know, being a veteran, I, I took advantage of my benefits and, you know, became a homeowner. And um, that stability definitely changed my life. And even in seeing that in myself, I know that it could do that for others. Mm -hmm. And I also know that things don't have to be the way they are. We don't have to have bigger. Bigger is not always better. There's lots of solutions out there. Yeah. Um, it's, it's also trying to help. I try to educate and help bring people along to understanding what, you know, not having a giant house or a new house in the housing condition, if you can make another decision and still become a homeowner. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get into that later in the conversation. Yeah. Get out of the cycle uh, that it can change yeah. your life. And, um, yeah. And then, so now I work with transitioning veterans in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm upstream at the problem in looking at, you know, presenting them from become homelessness down the, down the road instead of uh, treating the problem on the other end. Wonderful. So Sorry, we have a little bit a of a, that's okay. We have an Arkansas connection. Um, my okay. origin story is from Flint, Michigan, but my dad is from Newport, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And so, and my fiance's family is from Camden, Arkansas. So we got a little Arkansas love. Going All right. On. So you, <laughs> so I want to give a little public health insight to housing insecurity and instability right now. So in the United States, um, as in other countries, housing is considered a strong social detriment, uh, excuse me, determinant of health. Uh, poor housing conditions have been linked to multiple negative health outcomes in both children and adults. Um, the Department of Health and Human Services has defined housing in insecurity as a high housing cost in proportion to income, poor housing quality, unstable neighborhoods, overcrowding, and or homelessness uh, all contribute to housing insecurity and housing instability. And you mentioned something in your introduction when you talked about, although you've never experienced housing insecurity, you have been at risk at times. And mm -hmm. I think that could be a lot, that can be true for many of my listeners. Maybe they've never experienced homelessness or housing insecurity, but they could have been at risk due to uh, unemployment, being laid off, um, low, lower wages as the cost of living keeps going up and, the, and wages are not increasing. As right now, we have a war going on with raising the minimum wage and poor people fighting other poor people and poor people that don't, don't understand that they're poor just because they have a job with not wanting uh, people who work in fast food or certain industries to get this $15, which they, they need it. And whether you think they deserve it or not, they're workers and workers work hard and they deserve a fair wage um, to be able to live. And so you talked about working with homelessness uh, as it relates to veterans because you're a veteran. And what led you to be an advocate for, you know, helping veterans in homelessness and being an advocate to stop housing insecurity, as you said, on the macro level? 
So I'm going to tribute my advocacy to my mother. Um, she was a city council member in a small city for about 20 years and always stood up for right, um, even if it wasn't popular with the people around her. So that's definitely where I attribute my um, advocacy to. Um, but as far as when it comes to housing solutions, something, it's just being a voice for those who don't have a voice. It's being a, you know, a, a voice who backs it up with, you know, research and evidence and, and it's not just flying off with ideas. So try to be well grounded in that approach. And that's what it takes to get the attention of stakeholders and our, you know, our uh, policymakers in our local community and government. Wonderful. So I don't know if you know recently what's going on. Well, obviously, coronavirus is running rampant. And as I just read those statistics about how housing insecurity or instability can affect your health, most recently that was reported actually yesterday by the Los Angeles Times, a 59-year-old mechanic died in his home of coronavirus, although he never left his house. Due to housing uh, affordable housing. So we're going to touch on affordable housing in this, but because of the cost of living is so high and housing is becoming un unbearable for people to afford, um, this man in California was living in a one bedroom house with his six children. And his children had to go out and work to be able to maintain the home because rent was over a thousand dollars. Individually, they can't afford anything other than this one bedroom apartment. So four of the children, um, adult children were working and they brought coronavirus home, but they're in a one bedroom apartment. So the dad couldn't leave and his, he was a vulnerable population and he ended up um, passing on. And so you and I, you know, we live in the DFW area and a lot of Californians are moving to Texas in a big migration, as we could say, because for housing affordability so that they can afford their and maintain their lifestyle. But meanwhile, they're driving up the cost of people that live here. So can we, uh, can you touch on, you know, the housing crisis, housing affordability and your idea for tiny homes? Sure. So I always like to start with the numbers. Okay. Um, Let's do it. Follow the data, don't lie. And I'm pretty prepared on this. I'll be glad to send this over to you because I don't want viewers to take my word on it. I want them to, you know, look at the source and read some of these articles if they're interested. But oh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, uh, Ty. Uh, why I welcome my California brothers and sisters to come out here to the great state of Texas. We do have room, um, but it is impacting the housing boom. Um, no rhyme pun intended. So um, <laughs> You're a, far, a hard followed, uh, hard intro to follow up with your skills there. Uh, <laughs> so um, so I, I would like to just kind of walk through and, and paint a picture about what's going on in the past few years and, and how it's really impacting DFW in the, Texas. So single family home price is, has went up 8.4%. Uh, 8 That's the largest since 2014, okay? That's a seven year high. And we're talking about uh, North Texas, okay? Uh, the 40 county region. Uh, the and, and this number was determined by the price of the houses sold versus the increase since the last time that house was sold. Now, this index is now 25% higher than it reached during the Great Depression. Okay, so what I'm talking about is building up to, when you hear about the housing bubble, 
this is the data that people are talking about when they're behind that. And I'm going to continue on. I'm not going to get too deep in it. But so Dallas is 62%. So during the last seven years, since 2014, which is kind of when our economy recovered after the other housing and, and insurance and all that type of stuff, that, that crisis of 2008 or Eight. nine, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so, you know, as we covered through that and, and people started buying homes again, that's when this thing started really rising. And Dallas has now went up 62% over those seven years, which is the second highest increase in, in the housing market value in that index in the country. And that's measured against, I think, 140 metropolitan areas. So I'm mind blown. My, I'm, I'm blown away. Right, exactly. So why it's still, and I don't mean this to, to under me to say that for those that are, you know, trying to become home ownership and are struggling, you know, and, and finding a place, but it's really, it's still affordable here. That's what's even more mind blowing. It, it, it's still affordable compared to other areas of the country, but it's changing rapidly. So you're right on in, in, in saying that, Ty. Um, so like the, the average house in uh, across the country is 328,000, I'm sorry, $324,000. The average house in Dallas, this is the median, okay? The average median in Dallas is 328,000. So Dallas is now above the national median. That it, it's, we never have been. Uh, mm-hmm. Fort Worth prospectively is 249,000. So, and then Texas wide is 300,000. 20 something thousand. So our meetings are just, they went up significantly. And what that's based upon is the, the real estate stock that we have right now. That's, we're not even getting to new home construction, which we're going to t- touch on and talk about how that's being impacted by COVID and how that's impacting all of us. That's just the housing market, things that are for sale, uh, our housing stock that we have now. Um, and so, so that, as that trend continues, uh, there, that causes a shortage of houses. As you said, people up from California are moving in here somewhere around 300 families a day, just <laughs> North Texas. Yes. Why just North Texas, 300 families a day. It's so much so that you'll find articles and stuff where like you, uh, U-Haul and some of those Penzel. Uh, Pinsky. Thank you. Some of those companies are looking for drivers to drive these things back out to out West to uh, Nevada and Phoenix and Seattle and Dallas. So it's real. That, that max exodus of California is very real. Uh, so, you know, that's causing a, a, a stock in housing shortage. And what that's doing, Ty, why that's causing those who are qualified to buy a home, worked hard, they have their money saved up, they have everything lined up, is that it's a bidding war. Um, the, the average home, um, according to Zillow, um, in, in this area has about 21 bids on it. <laughs> and that's so funny that you mentioned that, David. So we're trying to we well, we're we're trying to purchase a home, but as my realtor said, it is a seller's market right now, as right. opposed to a buyer's market. And so, when you talk about the bids, a house can be on there, and and literally two minutes later, there is an offer on the table. There's cash offers. A lot of wealthy people are stumping out working class folk and they're getting these homes and rehabbing them. We see it all the time on HGTV and they do little uh, fixer uppers here and there. And then they sell the house for like 30% more than it was, than they purchased it for because they have the capital to do it, which I feel like the, I feel like with things like that, the government should step in because these wealthier people are having a monopoly 
on these houses that are going up for sale and they're able to grab them up as opposed to, you know, someone like myself um, who we were trying to save and get it, but we don't have it like that, like they do, or have to go through like a um, approval process, whereas mm-hmm. they already have the money. And so it, it's, it's, it's becoming terrible, like I said, for the working class and the working poor. And the middle, we all know that the middle class is kind of not the middle class like it used to be. And so basically, like I mentioned previously, you got four people, poor people pitting themselves against poor people, because I feel like if you're not rich, you're poor. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a class divide. Now, I'll sure. say, say this is that, you know, because you talked about LA and California, and then that's where I got my doctorate on. So I also spent a lot of time on the ground there because California is the center of our housing crisis and affordability. And, and just to put it out there, affordable housing, you know, some people like, well, that house, you know, $250,000 house isn't affordable, and that's the median. Uh, I don't disagree with you, but affordable housing is very individual. So it is, it is technically based on 30% of your income. That's what you're supposed to be able to spend on, on your mortgage. Yes. Well, in, in L.A. County, they are spending the average. And there's a lot of rich people in L.A. County. But that doesn't make up the bulk of L.A. County. Okay. Mm. Um, so 90%. 90% of income goes to housing alone in L.A. County. I believe it. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned the 30%. So according to this data... It says access to affordable housing is likely to reduce the chances that a family will live in a crowded condition or make multiple moves in a short period of time. Since the Housing Act of 1937, mind you, we're in 2021, was Mm -hmm. passed, 30% of monthly adjusted income has been used as the threshold of affordable housing costs, but affordability by this definition is becoming increasingly less common, as you mentioned, the 90% in LA County. Um, in 2008, half of renter households pay more than 30% of their income in rent and nearly a quarter pay more than 50% of their income. So people are literally living check to check just to survive and just to maintain a sense of security in their household. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and I'll, that'll segue us into what I want to talk about, like the affordable housing index. This comes from the National Association of Realtors. Um, and in DFW in 2014, um, again, because uh, in housing, I'm not sure why, but they like to look at things in seven-year increments. I, I don't know why, but um, you'll notice a lot of different databases that talk about that. But so we were ranked uh, 92nd in affordable places to live, um, which I thought, so uh, one would be the most affordable. Mm-hmm. And um, again, this is like 140 metro areas. So 92nd, you know, 2014, it it really doesn't seem that bad. And again, I'm not trying to disrespect those that say it's not affordable, but right. in a larger spectrum, you know, there's a lot of options here still, and there was. But now we've creeped up to 22 positions in that seven year, no, I'm sorry, five years uh, from 2014 to 2019. We're now 118. So, so we're steadily creeping up to being unaffordable and, you know, an unaffordable area to live in. Um, so yeah, there's just all kinds of things trending um, and you, you know, uh, it, it does make it tough. You, you know, you can't compete with someone who's coming here from California. Now, when you said that rich people buying it up, I, I definitely don't deny it. You know, I get a hanger on my house, like almost every week. It seems like I'll, I'll <laughs> house 
I call them and they want to offer half and I'm like, no, no, sir, I'm not struggling. Thank you though. <laughs> Appreciate um, it. Yeah. Um, then they say, they say cash twice. I'm like, this isn't the Pawn Star show, you know, <laughs> this is my house and I'm secure right now. No, thank you. <laughs> right. Uh, and I don't want to be out in the, you know, streets. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you got your house at a really decent rate. You probably got a very decent mortgage and you want to live comfortable. And it's like, don't try to push me out. Absolutely. And, and so uh, I want to, so we talked about housing stock and, and housing market, you know, and that's primarily talking about what's for sale out there, people reselling their homes and, and that type of medium thing. We didn't really talk about new construction. And I think this is good to segue back to, you know, your COVID story about the person, you know, unfortunately dying in this very small, compact place that he was um, sharing in, in, in LA. Uh, and to touch on that, to touch on I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tease a little bit of innovative solutions and there's just all kinds. But so when I was in L.A. in 2018, um, Bloomberg, uh, like uh, Mike Bloomberg, uh, he has lots of foundations and charities or whatever. He, he gave uh, L.A. County a grant and it was up to 50,000. It was 250 grants at 50,000 each. And what this did was this allowed someone to take like an above garage apartment or space that was un, that was like built illegally without code and all that type of thing. <laughs> Pull out anybody who had all that or anybody who had like a shed or a garage where people were living in and it's everywhere. And, and I don't fault them at all, but allowed that gave them some amnesty. So they could take that $50,000 grant, pay it back to the city, like a, like a zero cost interest, you know, program. It's a, it's a frontward loan as a grant. Um, and then um, they allowed them to bring all those small living spaces up to code where they have everything that they need at 50000 each. And the city gave them a 10-year guarantee to rent that out if, they, if they, that was the part of the deal. So you couldn't just do it just to have your family in there. Yeah. But it allowed you, the county will put, they're going to screen and they will put residents in those tiny homes, those shacks, those above garage places for 10 years on a contract. Um, anyways, I thought that was a very unique approach. And, and they said that they had, you know, just thousands and thousands of apps on that. So it seems yeah. to be like that's a successful uh, program. So our, so with it being there, was was it still affordable? Because I remember seeing a few years ago circular, circulating on Facebook that people were renting their tiny homes for like $1,200. I think that is... That's very affordable, though, in, 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 in L.A. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I'm, being, I'm just being honest. <laughs> like the friends that I have there um, right now that are, I don't mean like I have a few successful friends. That's different. But the friends that make, you know, what I'm middle class and stuff, you know, they're paying two to three grand, you know, for a very small space. We're thousand square foot or less. Yeah, I, I guess I'm very appalled by uh, living in a she shed for $1,200 because I come from Michigan, right? So even mm -hmm. moving to Dallas was shocking to me because before I moved here, um, I lived in a two-bedroom apartment in a really nice area. It had a dining room, a kitchen, a washer and dryer, uh, and two bedrooms, and I paid $585. And so <laughs> when... That's right. That's super affordable. It's probably gone up now since then. That was back in like 2013. However, but when I think about someone paying $1,200 for a little tiny space, it, it makes you feel like you're not getting the bang for your buck. You know what I mean? Right. $1,200 though. Like I, I have friends that are living in, um, you know, when you travel and you have that hostel option, 
um, yeah. where it's open or, or, or community-based travel, which I, I actually know a lot of people do that. It's, I mean, it's the way you can see the world. Yeah. You know, it's like 15 bucks a night or 25 bucks a night. Uh, you're in a place with bunks and stuff. But I have friends who work full-time in, in LA that and work in nonprofits and things like that. And they live in shared open spaces, females, males, co-ed, everything. It, it is that serious out there. Very communal. So no, I, do you think what? we're going to towards that now with so, the, with affordability of housing just almost being non-existent? If, if you ask me just to give a moonshot of where DFW would be, we're, we're expected to pass Chicago as a metro area by, by the time 2030. I look, I look ahead at, you know, population predictions and, and, and demographics and things like that. So, you know, it's eight, excuse me, uh, you know, about eight and a half or so years from now, eight and three quarter years from now. So at that point, that's possible. Right now, Texas, you know, we have a lot of land. And even in Dallas, in Fort Worth, we have a lot of land. Dallas has 9,000 and something odd square miles of land they can develop still. Now we need our green space, but that um, I don't know if that's counting green space or that's land that actually can be built on. So, but I know that is the number. On the Fort Worth side of things, we have 14,000 square miles. That's a lot. There's, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's per square foot in LA for a lot, like, like a thousand square foot lot in LA would be like a million bucks, like, you know, mm -hmm. so just for the land. So yeah, we have an abundance of land still um, again. So I, I don't see us quite trending towards that. But we have to advocate for policy, you know, you know, I get into why once we get to that tiny home space, I, yeah. I wanted to, if you could, I wanted to touch on uh, the pandemic and new construction and how that's let's talk, let's talk about it, get right into it. Okay, good. Um, so um, the pandemic, so I laid out, uh, forgive me, I got to use my notes here. Um, I, I laid out some things that are, you know, what it's impacting. We know loss of jobs, unemployment, um, it, it, and that can cause an increase in housing stock from people who are having to sell their home. Luckily, um, and, and I'll have a link on this, I'll forward this to you for anyone who may need it, but, you know, our, our housing, um, uh, the government, um, Biden's office stepped in and extended everything to the end of February. It's not long term yet. So those, um, you know, those uh, mortgage and all those uh, uh, foreclosure things and, and, and you know, uh, getting kicked out. I'm not going to use the right terminology today, but uh, <laughs> there, there's protections in place right now. OK, yeah. so, so that's not impacting so much um, right now. Um, some other things that are uh, causing, um, you know, COVID to affect the housing stock, people working remotely are now encouraged to stay at home, whereas someone working remotely, they're commuting out. So we, we can talk about DFW, you know, they're living in, you know, Allen or which I call like the greater exterior of DFW, the experts, <laughs> yes. um, or some of the other areas that are identified that are making the hour commuter. So, you know, that may be encouraged to work in a downtown or uptown or wherever their job is. Now they're not so encouraged to. So people are staying put. Um, so they're not selling some of those other homes that are available. Now, and specifically when you talk, and also the lowest, uh, we're at the lowest mortgage rates ever in the history of the United States of America, ever. Um, I believe it's somewhere around two and a quarter flat if you have the, the top credit. That, that's insane. I mean, the difference that's between good. even four percent. <laughs> if you have the down payment. The difference between two and 4%, you know, is, is like on, on like an average median home, one of these $250,000 homes, that's like a grand a month in interest difference or 800 bucks. Um, but so, so those type of things are impacting it. And then when you talk about um, supply and demand, 
uh, on new construction, there's a labor shortage from people getting sick in, in COVID. Um, even though I couldn't pull the data, which I found interesting because just based on optics and what we see here in Texas, we know that it's largely a Hispanic population who are doing the hard labor. It, it is just optically what we see. Uh, I, I try to find data on it, but I couldn't. Um, so I could be wrong, but that's just my optics. Yeah, visually when you're right. moving down the highway, that's what you see. <laughs> Any highway in Texas has construction. I mean, that's what <laughs> yeah, that's what you uh, see. And I have friends who do it, so it's no disrespect. Yeah. Uh, but so, there, you know, we know that they're going to be under, underinsured, undercovered, you know, and we already know that Hispanic and people of color are disproportionately affected by COVID. So that alone causes some labor shortages in an area that we have not had labor shortages before. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not even going to get into it, but um, immigration policy has impacted labor shortages in construction. Um, but so also what some people might not be thinking about is China and even everything is really just tying into what is causing this housing bubble to just be creeping up and our shortages to be shrinking and, and, and everything to be just, you know, increasing in, in that housing index, you know, like things like metal parts and things, even from hardware and houses and things, we don't make that in America. Let's be honest, we make that in right. China. Mm -hmm. So if we have policy in place that's taxing the heck out of that, that causes, for one, it's backed up because it's coming from overseas and then we have tariffs and then those things are gonna be higher higher costs. So there's things in construction that we use metal for bracing and, and stuff like that. That's not made in America. Uh, we import it by, you know, the boatload, literally. Mm -hmm. um, so those things are impacting that type of supply chain. And then you have warehouses and you have lumber, which we do use from here in America. Those people are, you know, on the ground getting sick. And so there's shortages everywhere in the whole supply chain um, industry and getting to the Home Depots behind are impacted from COVID and those workers. Um, so all those things are impacting the, the supply chain. And um, also uh, another thing that um, competitive construction, uh, the bidding price, I have a friend who's a general contractor, um, and, you know, and the, the bidding is a lot more serious now because the government is not, um, they're not contracting for new construction. There's no large government contracts out there. I say no, they're not new ones right now being thrown out there so much. Um, the ones that are out there continue. So there's not new big government contracts. Um, large developments are, 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 are happening, but they're very timid-like. So that's causing our general contractor stuff out there to literally have bidding wars. Yeah. And so that also brings down their, you know, their uh, ability to make a profit. So it's just impacting all kinds of ways, materials, manufacturers, supply chain, logistics, and labor forces, and all the way down to um, Home Depot and Lowe and those having oh, enough wow. to help. Not to mention the mom and pop stores. So everyone's impacted. Right. Everybody's impacting the whole supply chain. So um, that's another reason why that uh, we, if you hear or if you look on YouTube, we hear about a housing bubble and the housing market busting. They're expecting us to be short from all those things. We'll, we'll, you don't see things so instantly. So in 20, you know, 20, we didn't really see those constructions still going, not necessarily a status quo. But right now, everybody's kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. Is that supply chain going to shrink up and we're going to be able to ramp up new construction? And is the demand going to be there? Um, those are things that we're really just not sure of. So that's just really on the bubble, which causes the larger housing context of the bubble to be, it's, it's very unstable. Um, LA has went up 300 and I want to say 90% over the same like five and seven year of data. That's and we know, right. And we know what happened to LA was when the housing market busted in 09 or 08 ish in there. Um, you know, it was the same thing. You had homes that were literally only worth two or 300,000 that were valued at a million. And then it wasn't happening no more. 
And right now we're seeing 390% increases in, in home market value out there. David, so, that yeah, is insane. Crazy. First of all, that's insane. You brought up a, a great point about like how the supply and demand and the whole chain, everyone's affected. There's literally a hotel not too far from me. And we know this is DFW where construction right. goes up in a matter of seconds. Mm-hmm. It, it's still not complete. You know, I feel like maybe they had to stop for stop for cause uh, uh, cost sickness. Something is causing that hotel not to be done yet because we live in a place where literally you drive by it yesterday and the next day you're like, geez, when when did, when did that happen? So, so David, we 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 definitely brought you in for your expertise. And now let's mm-hmm. talk solutions. Tell us about the tiny homes lesser space you know you want people be wanting these like five thousand square foot homes and we know that it don't take all of that so break it down for us so right we know where we're at we can't control control the bigger things but what we can talk about is solutions um and what's out there um and where that's kind of sitting out and so first i want to define tiny home um and if you define tiny home by just tiny home a tiny home is basically regulated as a mobile home. It has like a, a uh, it has for the lack of a better word, like a serial number or VIN number, like your RV, your full wheeler, that type of genre would have, or a, a mobile home in that type of camper, that type of space. And um, while they're great solutions, I'm just going to put in context why it's also a challenge. Um, if it's a true tiny home, because of that mobility, it's extremely hard for anybody to get financing. Well, so it sounds like it might be a good affordable solution. It's really, right now, it's only a good affordable solution if you're a cash buyer. And the cost of those are, are, can range exponentially. I mean, anywhere from, you know, if you're not the builder, if you're not building it out, $30,000 to $90,000 for one of those things, okay? Um, so in context, and then so there's not, a, there's not a, a, a mortgage company out there that's going to loan $50,000, dollars $80,000 on you, and you can pick that thing up and leave in a day. Okay, so that's one challenge of the, quote, pure tiny home in the context of what's out on TV. Um, Now, what I like to call tiny home or, you know, smaller homes or affordable homes, I kind of classify, and this is me personally from looking at the literature and reading and understanding um, what we can do in context, but, uh, you know, about under a thousand square foot, okay? Um, That doesn't mean that it's mobile, but um, that just you know, opens up a lot of different doors um, that, uh, of things and times and spaces. But generally speaking, a tiny home or a container home is under about 400 square foot, okay? Pretty small. <laughs> right, yeah, that, that's very, very small. And, and that's why I kind of look at it at two stages. We can just say zero to 500 to make it easy. So at zero to 500, definitely gonna be a small space and someone's gonna sacrifice for. But if you can DIY, do it yourself, or if you can cut some corners, you don't need you know, if you really want to stick to the bases, it can, you know, it can change your life in that zero to $50,000 space. Um, and if you need that, you know, 500 to 1,000 square foot uh, space, you, we can actually build homes or we can take three containers together, in, in, in which is 1,200 square foot, which doesn't sound so small and can be built in that same uh, capacity in that same fifty dollars to $100,000 range. Okay. Um, so there's just, just a lot of options in there. Um, and so there's kind of four, four things happen in innovative housing. One, tiny homes that I just talked about that you can pick up and move around. Two, container homes, 
which, which have been around for a long time, but what makes them unique and what makes them still a, a very, very good option and why they're my favorite option is because we have a surplus of 5 million containers in the United States. We import out about 10, 000, 10 million containers a year. We import in about 15 to 16 million containers a year, predominantly from China. China's about 80% of that. China. So we have, yeah, China, China. No, Ty, what we're not going to do is talk about China because my microphone's from China. This little from China, okay? But, but uh, uh, we do what we can do. Uh, but, but yeah, and, and seriously, so um, we have 5 million of them, guys. And I'm, I'm all about a total green-centric. That's just my own person. This is Dr. Day's personal philosophy. I'm very green-centric and you know, environmentally friendly and I'm conscious about that whole cycle. And so if we use a container, it's called upcycling. We're repurposing it. We're not even reshaping it and melting it down or not something like that. We're, we're taking something metal that's already existing. And then by doing that, we're not taking metal out from a factory or still, we're not having to introduce new metals into the earth, okay? With a, 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 a tiny home, unless you're using repurposed wood and stuff like that, which can be done, that's very creative, it can happen, but that's not gonna, that's not gonna solve the problem for the masses. So we're still, it's, it's a green solution in the sense that it's tiny and it, you're gonna have you know, much lighter bills and that type of you know, overhead um, when you're talking about utilities, but it's not a green solution material-wise. So there's lots of different variables in here. So we have the, mo the, the, the tiny home, we have container home, we have the third category is modular home and modular home basically is kind of what our mobile homes are, are um, and I'm not trying to be, you know, me, but trailer parks, mobile yeah. home parks, that type of genre that's been around forever. Um, you don't see them so much in the city due to regulation, but the new modular homes are sexy. Okay. They're they, cool. are, they have, they have upstairs, they, yes. they're like the double wides have the upstairs portion. They're really cute. They got porches. It's cute. Absolutely. That's why I'm, I'm careful not to knock that. And then also, Within that, you've got two. You've got the ones that are, the modular homes that are being built in the more traditional mobile home um, type of, of style, like you're talking about the bigger. We're still talking, you can get a lot of square footage in there. But the 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 majority or, or, or the growing sector is the modular homes that are in that 300 to six, 800 square foot space where they got factories that are turning them out and they're basically boxes like containers too. And they're being shipped on a pallet, flattened out in pieces and then reassembled on site. And what that does is save major on construction and that type of labor cost. So that, that's kind of the trend in that modular home. So that's, that's three. Our fourth one is 3D printing homes, okay? Um, and and what's, what's awesome, what we can say about Texas is that our first 3D home was printed in Austin, Texas in 2016 by an engineer grad student from Baylor five years ago. Go Bears. Oh. Huh? Yeah. I said, go Bears. <laughs> yeah, so five years ago, man. And so this guy has since started a company called Icon Construction. You can look it up. It's amazing. They are probably in the final stages of research and development. They are printing homes in Central America. They're printing homes in Mexico. And they're just, they're just testing out how do you scale this? Okay, we can, we can build one. And, and just to, to kind of give you the cost if, difference between the four, I should have used a chart. And um, I'm not, I'm not going to use my, my handwriting's terrible for you. <laughs> yes, but teach us, Dr. David. It's easier than me just Dave running his mouth. Okay, so one, we have the tiny homes. Okay, and, and this is based on data. This isn't me, me, me just spouting it out. Okay, so most of them, if you look it up, they're really in the 50 to 100K range. Okay, that, that's what I see out there. You're lucky you find one, the very essentials, the 30 to 40K range. And that's mm -hmm. someone else building it from, for you or, or you, you know, uh, uh, buying it from someone. 
if, if you're DIY, if you're DIY, you should be less than 20K. You know, that, I mean, that's something you can really li li realistically save for. Okay, so you have that one. And then um, two are container homes. Okay, so there's lots. I know you can't read that, but that's a C. So that's I container. Saw it. It's a C. I can read it. <laughs> that's, con <laughs> that's, that's container homes. And um, so you can pick those up in a, a, a slightly used container um, for two to 5K. Okay, two to five thousand dollars. Again, you could build it out for ten to twenty k. I mean, a fully functioning container home. Okay, you could build it out. You could order it from others, depending on how small you want to go. If you want to get down to uh, a, a ten by ten by ten container, <laughs> like a closet, you know, <laughs> you can get one for five grand, right? But but if you want one that is the twenty foot. Uh, they're 20 by eight, so they're 320 square foot. So now they're about on par with what a, a, a typical tiny mobile home is, which is, you know, like I said, 400 to, you know, 300 square foot or so. Um, and then, uh, so 320 square foot, uh, a typical size container, you're, you're looking at 20 to 50. But that 320, that, that box is 20 feet long. I'm telling you, it looks really spacious. But what um, after that, this all sounds... Fantastic. Yeah. But will people be able to get finance for this? You, you got to think about the working man, the poor man, because we know that the banks will approve you for a car before they approve you for a housing loan. So how right. likely is a person able to be financed for this? So, yeah, I'm going to get to that. So you can. So and then the modular homes, they're 50 to 100 and then 3D printed home. That's why I wanted to throw out there and just throw out that, that carrot of what could be when we're talking about 2030. We're going to have to be co-oping and living back to bunk bed style. Um, so so a 3D home can be printed in 24 to 48 hours. And the pure raw material cost of that that exterior structure and interior wall structure is a couple grand. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what's amazing about 3D printing. But uh, can people get financed? So the question is yes and no. It depends on your credit. Um, <laughs> so, like um, most things. Right. So what I'll say is that, is that, um, gosh, the wind's really crazy right here in DFW. <laughs> so out here. Um, is that first, I want people to under to to like you know I would like people to consider these in, as an option because, um, you know if you can get in one of these you know ten to twenty or thirty thousand dollar homes as an owner it'll change your side uh, life it'll it'll break the renter cycle okay if you happen can to, can save up with it for without financing you can get you know if you have really good credit you know seven hundred above most of your banks and especially so if you have a credit union. You can get a $10,000, $15,000, $20,000 signature loan. Uh, you, you really can um, it, it, based on credit. And that will allow you to, to jump into one of these spaces. What will change the game in the larger spectrum at the system level is what's happening right now. And then that is the uh, 3D printing um, and modular, modular homes is pretty much already there, but container homes and tiny homes weren't really there. They are now, uh, the code is wrote for International Building Code, IBC our international construction building code. And so what that does is allows you to go to your local city and say that, because the city don't understand, they don't understand the value, they don't understand if it's safe, they, they don't think it is, which is just asinine because a container home is 
it can withstand a tornado. It, it doesn't burn, it's a steel box. So anyways, but without having those things in writing, it's just you and I having a conversation saying, we're gonna build the most beautiful container in the neighborhood. And they're going, yeah, right, <laughs> it's a steel shack. We're not having it, you know, in our- right. the, HO, the HOA people would have a conniption, okay? Yeah, they're not going to those aesthetic. neighborhoods. Right. <laughs> my, my point to lead to, you know, can we finance it and can it happen is, is that it's it's written, some of them I think is already done. I think container homes are now in the in international building code. So that gives you precedence. That gives you something that you can take and physically have to go argue with a lot that you're going to buy in a non-HOA area somewhere in the, the Metroplex that you want to put a container home or a tiny home or order modular home on is that 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 international building code was huge and I believe it's passed on all of them now and then even like 2019 that stuff wasn't passed so all the stuff you're seeing on TV they had weird RV uh, permits and, and things like that or camping permits it was not the norm and that's what wasn't allowing the growth so now that they're in the the IBC or I think they are in final stages of um, in, in 2020 late 2020 2021 that's going to open some things up now that they're in the building code um, also uh, real estates um, people understanding and they're developing all these systems have to be built how do we value it you know how does the resale market you know how can we put Man, because three container homes, they're 900 square foot. I followed all day. I reposted all day. You know, they look beautiful. They look luxurious. You know, you can take out the steel and you have a, a floor to ceiling thing. It looks better than, uh, you know, a lot of homes in my opinion, but I have a modern um, taste. Um, <laughs> so, you know, th th they look like two, $300,000 homes. And realistically, you know, they're, they're 80 to $120,000 homes. Um, so so as, as we're able to set the precedent precedence, for, and I hate that word, presidents and, and, and precedents uh, and you gotta uh, pronounce that C. Uh, what's what's what's, what's <laughs> the, the unprecedented? That's the worst one. I don't, I don't use that word no more. Uh, but you know, as, as we're able to establish value, we're able to say that it's safe. They're not going to burn down. Then we can argue for you know development of 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 these things. And then with that will come. Okay, so we have developers that are going to invest in it. We have city that's going to say it's okay. They're going to, you know, not fight with the policy on it. Then, then, then the banks are going to know that it's okay. You know, they're going to open up that, right. They're going to open that up. So some things still have to fall in place for that mat wide scale financing to happen. If I could install my level of innovation, I would do something like a, you know, if I, Dave had the money and resources or someone wants to hit me up, we can talk, you know, but I, I've actually written out a plan where, it would be like uh, Carmart used to be or CarMax used to be or one of the, you know, a toucher note. This is no offense, but a toucher note house type of system because you still own the car at that point. Yeah. And, you know, so like, so they could find, you can find it's thirty to $40,000. I mean, there's people Yeah, you could pay that off in about seven years. Right, there's people that have Way those less than a 30-year uh, mortgage or indentured right. servitude, as I like to call it. Oh, um, man. <laughs> right, so, putting that on par with your thirty and forty thousand dollar charges or Tahoes, yeah. or, you know, that, that people are buying for for things that are eight nine hundred a month. So putting on that seven to ten year spectrum, and then to end your homeowner. Yeah, yeah, and you can live. You can you can be free from the shackles <laughs> of rent and the the mortgage. You know, being a slave to your mortgage, right. and all you have to do is worry about paying your taxes. So. We want to thank you, Dr. David, for these yeah. innovation, innovative solutions. Thank you for coming on to Nate Talks and giving my listeners this information. Um, I love that you're so number oriented. You come with the facts, period. <laughs> yeah. 
So, Dr. David, please let my listeners know how they can follow you and get more information about innovative ways to affordable housing. Sure. Um, so you can follow me at Twitter. That's um, at Dr. Dr. Uh, Dave, D-A-V-E, Cares, C-A-R-E-S. That is the easiest one to go. Go to Dr. Dave Cares um, at Twitter. Um, and that would be that would be the best way to get a hold of me. Wonderful. Um, and we'll have that right down in the show notes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So Dr. David, in true today talks about fashion, this is your time to give your shout out. So you're trying to give a shout out to? Man, uh, you know what? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm just isolated. Let, let me just give a <laughs> shout out to 2021 being, uh, being more positive as we move forward. And 20, you know, for those who are doing right and masking up and, and, and if you choose to get doctorate, whatever we can do to fight COVID and move forward in life, that's who I want my shout out to be. And in and, and all sincerity, I, you know, working in a hospital setting, you know, the frontline workers, our essential workers, is ever is, is our people in the grocery stores and gas stations, those high volume type of people, you know, in our retail stores and things like that. So, I mean, in all honestly, shout out to them because they are the ones that are making that minimum wage. They are the ones that deserve 15 bucks an hour right. to, to, to earn that, that minimum wage. And that's who my shout out's for. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. We want to dedicate this show to all the essential workers out there, the nurses, the doctors, the retail uh, people out there, the cashiers, the servers, the waiters, the cooks, um, the, the grocery stores. This show is dedicated to you. You deserve $15 an hour or more. You are valuable. You are loved. And you also deserve to have affordable housing and not feel like you're at risk for housing absolutely security so thank you dr david you're make welcome. sure you send us those links we'll have them down below in the show notes mm -hmm. peace out remember All today right. talks and you listen the podcast that entertains and educates all right y'all have a good one